2: my book is about my kind of trying to come to terms with my family history, specifically my grandfather, who was um, a school teacher in the black forest in Germany in the, in the thirties and that, but was also a Nazi party member and then went on to be sent to France, to occupied France, to reeducate French children and turn them into good Germans. And, you know, early in most of my life, I kind of knew that's all I knew and, and and obviously had some suspicions about what that what that meant like being complicit with this horrific regime but then in my in my 30s I discovered that that my mother discovered that he had actually kind of also collaborated with the local resistance so my book is really trying to explore that like first of all just what how did this man become that man And what did it mean for a German like him, a kind of an ordinary German?
1: Hello, everyone. This is A.J. Woodhams, host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Today, I am extremely excited to have on the show Burkhard Bilger for his newest book, Fatherland, a memoir of war, conscience, and family secrets. Burkhard has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2001. His work has also appeared in The Atlantic, Harper's, and The New York Times, among other publications. He has received fellowships from Yale University, McDowell, and the New York Public Library's Coleman Center. His first book, Noodling for Flatheads was a finalist for the Penn Martha Albright Award. Burkhard, how are you doing today?
2: I'm good. I'm good. Happy to be here.
1: Yeah, likewise. And first, I got to ask, what, is, what was Noodling for Flatheads about?
2: Noodling is, I mean, the, the, it's a book of essays about kind of crazy old Southern traditions that have kind of survived into the modern age and kind of what they tell That's us like about the, how the south has changed when people uh, stick the the is a into... thing where you yeah you basically in the springtime you walk along a riverbank when the when the catfish are nesting and the and the female drops a clutch of eggs and the male kind of hovers in the riverbank protecting the eggs and so noodlers kind of walk along the riverbank and feel for holes and when they there, there's a hole with a fish in it it will bite their hand to protect the eggs. And so the noodle will jam his arm down the fish's throat and grab the fish by the gills and pull it out that way. So it's one of these great old, slightly insane Southern traditions.
1: Well, I love the the breadth of writing that comes from uh, the the guests that I have on this show. Very interesting because I had a, a, a writer named George Black on the show, um, who just wrote a book about Vietnam. And he used to write for Fly Fisherman magazine. So there's interesting, something. There- <laughs> uh,
2: interesting coincidence. George Black is my brother-in-law. He's married to my, my wife's sis- sister. Yep.
1: Wow. This is, this is definitely a first on the show.
2: I've been fishing with George Black many times.
1: <laughs> <laughs> is this a, so? This is a, this is a shared, just like two guys who first write about fishing and then go on to write about war. Is that?
2: You no, know, no. I mean, he, George is a real fisherman. I mean, George has written books about fly fishing. He's he's been all over the world fly fishing. I'm I I'm just I was kind of more into crazy southern traditions, you know. So I kind of did noodling. I also wrote about. You know, coon hunting and frog farming and cockfighting and all these other traditions. But uh, yeah, Georgia—that was one area where we kind of overlap for a moment.
1: Wow. Well, you'll have to tell George I said hello the next time you see him at uh, a family gathering or Christmas or something. Yeah. Well, let's get talking about your book, which really fascinating. One of the questions that I like authors to start out answering in the show is, if in your own words. Could you just tell us what is your book about?
2: Well, my book is about my kind of trying to come to terms with my family history, specifically my grandfather, who was um, a school teacher in the Black Forest in Germany in the in the 30s, and that but was also a Nazi party member, and then went on to be sent to France, to occupied France, to re-educate French children and turn them into good Germans. And you know, early in most of my life, I kind of knew that's all I knew. And, and, and obviously had some suspicions about what that, what that meant, like being complicit with this horrific regime. But then in my, in my thirties, I discovered that, that my mother discovered that he had actually kind of also collaborated with the local resistance. So my book is really trying to explore that. Like, first of all, just what, how did this man become that man? And what did it mean for a German like him, a kind of an ordinary German, to be living in that era? And how did they come to join the Nazi Party? And 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 how did they re- change as they were in it? You know, we I think we know so we have so many examples of kind of horrific Nazis as you can understand, and then we have the occasional Schindler, you know, who's who's a German who rebelled distinctly from the beginning but we don't have a lot of people in the gray area in between. And that was kind of what I wanted to explore with this. What did, what about ordinary Germans who did join, but then had misgivings about it and changed their minds?
1: Yeah. And I think too, um, there is, I mean, it is interesting to, to think about that gray area, which you explore a lot in the book. As somebody describes your grandfather at one point as a very reasonable Nazi, how did you, Come away from this story with a better understanding of that gray
2: area. You know, it's. I think part of what what you have to do with a story like this is you have to understand the deep context. You know, and, and, like how did, you know, when there's this assumption that this kind of fever of Nazism swept through Germany and tapped into some deep latent anti-Semitism and deep anti-warlike behavior. There's some assumptions made about about Germans in general um, there that I think. You know, kind of missed the the history that preceded it, and and I think you know, if we look at what's happened since World War II, you see all these, you know, these terrible mass murders all across the world. You know, you have the Stalin's purges, and then you have the, under Mao tens of millions of people died, and you have Pol Pot in Cambodia, and you have Bosnia, and you have the Turkish the Armenian genocide, and like we all have this capability in us, like any country has a capability or people has an ability to be to 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 turn to this kind of horrible um murderous behavior the question then becomes like how did they get there like what are the historical conditions what what leads people into this and i think that's still a relevant question for us today so that's for me a lot of my grappling was really about understanding how he got there you know like his his youth in in the Black Forest, in this kind of feudal economy, crushing poverty. You know, tenant farmers didn't own their land, barely could keep their family alive. And then getting sent to World War I in 1918 at the very end of this senseless slaughter um, and all, and losing an eye and losing his best friend in his arms. And then coming back to Germany in the 20s to hyperinflation. And and deep depression, much deeper than what we saw in this country, uh, with with the reparations being sent for the Treaty of Versailles for what they did in World War One, and then you know the Nazis come along, and 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 with and Hitler is clearly a nut, but he's also has this economic program that that speaks to my grandfather's desire for egalitarianism, for 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 working people to have a decent wage, and you know, so a lot of it for me was. Not so much, is he guilty or is he innocent, but how did he become guilty and, and, how, and how did that process, how did he kind of unspool that process?
1: Yeah. Well, before we dive into your, uh, your grandfather's story and, and the journey that you went on to discover it, um, let's actually talk about your own story, which is where you start the book. It is a memoir. Mm-hmm. Talk about, talk about your, your childhood. Your parents were German immigrants. You grew up in Oklahoma. Um, talk a little bit about that
2: yeah my parents you know were came in 1962 together my they'd grown up together had been in school together my father ended up getting his PhD in physics and 62 you know it's beginnings of the space race and and a lot of German rocketry folks like Werner von Braun had already come over to the United States and so there was a huge boom in that type of physics and electrical engineering that my father did. And so he um, he came over from a postdoc thinking he would just stay for a couple of years. And then they just kind of fell in love with the country. And he was also kind of enamored of cowboy and Indian stories. He'd grown up with these German books about the American West. And so a, an opening came at Oklahoma State University. So he moved there because that, that he wanted to be in Indian territory. So you know, my parents, my mother had, you know, had, had, had a horrible war. She, they were both, both born in 35. So there were children during the war and my mother had to flee French bombings two or three times to, and hide in the black forest and almost gotten killed there. And my father, you know, his family had done a little bit better, but, you know, of course the whole country is devastated around them. So I think for them, Coming to the United States, coming to Oklahoma, being in the middle of the prairie, you know, with none of that history around them was a huge, huge relief. And, and and they kind of they kept their German culture. I mean, we spoke German at home. There were five kids, three of my two of my sisters and my older brother were all born in Germany and, and came over as little children. But I was born in the United States and my little sister was, too. But we had this little German enclave. In the middle of the prairie, you know, we were very academic. We celebrated all these German traditions, Nikolaus Tag and and Fasnacht and and these kind of things, and uh, ate German food. But but the one part of of that German tradition we didn't really delve into was was that history, that specific World War II history. And I think my mom is an especially interesting person in this case, and she's really who. Person that brought me into this story because she, as soon as my little sister went to first grade, my mother went back to school and ended up getting a PhD in history, and wrote her dissertation, her big doctoral work, on the French German occupation of France and Marshal Pétain, the French leader, and and she, you know, spent years on that. And yet what was striking to me later as an adult was the fact that she never looked into her father's own story. Here was a story in the middle of this area that she was looking at so closely that spoke to that history so directly. And yet she never really investigated it. And it really wasn't until, I mean, there's this, I I can tell you the story in 1983, my parents came to Germany. They came to France originally. They came to Southern France. My father was giving a talk on white noise at a physics conference, and afterwards they were driving through northeastern France to Germany to see relatives, and suddenly my mom saw the street sign, you know, the, the village sign for the village where my grandfather had been posted in World War II it was Bautenheim, and she hadn't, she'd only been there once when she was eight years old. My grandfather had taken her there for one day to kind of sit in on his classes while he taught these French children. It was just across the river from their hometown in Germany. So it was an easy trip. So anyway, on this day they're driving, they see this street sign. And my mom says, pull over. I, I want to, I haven't, I want to see this town. I want, and she had just finished her dissertation. And I think she was kind of ready to finally kind of confront this history. So she went into the town she went up to the old schoolhouse which was now the town hall this beautiful old building she walked around but there was very little left of that history there and she started to think you know what am i doing here why am i kind of digging up all these old bad memories and she was heading back to the car and she saw an old man across the street with a little wagon he's pulling two of his grandkids in this wagon and she looks at him she thinks gosh You know, if my dad were still alive, I think he'd be about that same age. I wonder if he remembers him. So she kind of rushes across the street and stops him and says, excuse me, you know, my father, Calgunna, was here from 40 to 44. Is there any chance you knew him? And the old man, his name is George is just kind of dumbstruck and looks at her and says, knew him. I saved his life. And that was when she discovered George Chile had been the head of the resistance and he and my grandfather had been collaborators during the war and had kind of worked to help protect the village from like the harsher Nazi policies and kept people from being sent to the camps. And, and that was suddenly when it became a much more interesting, much more complicated story for her and later for me, like what, who was this man and how did he manage to balance those two different agendas?
1: yeah and also that that moment in your book that you just described as far as cliffhangers go an excellent cliffhanger because then we actually go in your book into your your story and what led you to uh to trace your grandfather's story well but first growing up in you talk about growing up in oklahoma state or in the the town What's what's the name of the town? The Stillwater.
2: Oklahoma? It's where Oklahoma State is. Stillwater, yeah. Oklahoma.
1: Well, I went to school in Indiana or in Bloomington, Indiana, at Indiana University. Which, by the way, you describe um, Stillwater oh, it's almost identical because, like, it's a town built around the university, and outside of the yeah. town, it's like it's farm country and, and stuff like that.
2: Yeah. Well, what yeah. Is- no, I mean, I love Bloomington. Bloomington's a great town. I, I love it, and it's a little cooler than Stillwater, but I love Stillwater too. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a cool town. Uh, I'm not—I haven't been to. I've got some friends who went to Oklahoma State. I'll have to um, ask them all about the uh, the hip spots in Stillwater. But mm. uh, well, if we were to go back to thirteen-year-old uh, Burkhardt and ask, you know, what do you know about World War II? What kind of answer would we get?
2: You know, I think I would you would have gotten the same answers you'd kind of gotten from any American kid at that age. You know, I I mean I watched war movies, I watched, you know, Hogan's Heroes, which kind of made, you know, fun of German prison camps, which is kind of crazy. I can't imagine that happening today. I knew about the Nazis being bad people, and I and I knew that you know, I never connect. I never felt, I think, any kind of sense of shame or guilt in that sense. I knew my mom was a kid, and, and my dad were both kids in World War II, and had nothing to do with that. And, and I knew them to be, you know, highly moral people. So, I never felt personally guilty about it. But I certainly, like everybody else, I think of the, I've thought of the Nazis as bad guys, and I thought of which they were, quite obviously. You know, I think what. As I got a little older, you know, into my 20s, I came east for college. I went to Yale. And and suddenly there, the questions became much more pointed. Oh, you're German. You know, uh, When are your parents German? Yeah, they were born in Germany. Ooh, when were they born in Germany? You know, and it was this kind of... There were instantly... Everybody was instantly looking to see if I was somehow complicit with this history. So that was a new thing for me. I'd always been kind of proud of my German roots, c- proud of my German heritage. I did not associate it directly with, with war crimes. That just wasn't yeah. part of how I was taught or how I was raised.
1: And what was your relationship like um, growing up with your grandfather, Carl, who, who this this book is largely about? What was your relationship yeah. with like?
2: You know, I, I knew him a, a fair bit considering the distance we were apart. I mean, because when, when I was five and six, my parents moved to Germany for a year. And so we spent a lot of weekends there at, at his house. And I got to know him and, his, and my grandmother. And then when I was in junior high, seventh and eighth grade, we moved to France. And, and then we would go for a couple of years. And so we would often go to Germany. And I would see him then as well. You know, he was a kind of a, a daunting figure. I mean, he was this tall, gaunt shock of gray hair he had one glass eye from the eye he'd lost in world war one and so and that was kind of you know disconcerting he was very earnest and and grave and sober he was you know kind to me but it wasn't but even my cousins later when i when i started to write the book i would go and interview all my cousins and my uncles and aunts even my cousins in germany who'd spent you know, their whole childhood with him didn't have a real sense of connection to him. You know, he was something that I think was so common in that generation of Germans, which was kind of this spectral figure, this man who had clearly been through huge traumatic history, you know, amazing, terrible stories, but never spoke about it. And that that was true of that whole generation. There was, you know, there was just a silence about about all that. And so, the upshot was you would have these people in front of you who were clearly formidable, clearly had terrible and amazing stories to tell, but, but couldn't tell them. And so you were kind of, there was a, just a built-in distance, I think.
1: Yeah. It's so interesting to, so my great-grandfather fought in World War II on the American side. And he was, in, he was on Iwo Jima and i think we hear a lot in the states about how nobody of that generation talks about their wartime experience and that was true for him too although i never met him um that's what i'm told and i wonder if that's if there's just like a maybe a shared not to like compare traumas from the different armies who fought against each other but i wonder if it's specific to that generation or if maybe you think it's specific to to germans who fought I, I don't know. Do you find that there's a lot of the same attitudes when it comes to people who fought on other sides of the war that they just don't want to talk about it?
2: You know, I think that's true. Uh, I think the the huge difference is. I mean, there's obviously terrible war trauma on both sides, and I think you're right. Absolutely. You know, there were a lot of American soldiers who did not want to talk about that. But there was also at the same time this kind of overlay of, you know, the greatest generation, this sense of her, her- Hero, heroism, you know, that came from these people. And and there were heroic stories that were told, you know, that were allowed to be told. Uh, you know, certainly Germans of that generation were not going to go around and talk about, you know, their great victories early in the war or how they, you know, <laughs> they took over Poland. You know, that was just not something that was allowed to be spoken of. And so I don't know how You know, if you felt that kind of war trauma, it's so fundamental and so horrific to have been through that experience. I'm not sure how much those glorious stories can help. I think in some cases they can. I think for other people, it just goes too deep and they kind of think they know those stories to be sentimental constructs anyway, you know, so it's, it's tricky.
1: Well, definitely, with my great grandfather, really, all the family knows about his wartime experience. Like what he actually did is, uh, he had a flamethrower, and it would go into the caves, and that was obviously something very traumatic to have to do to, sure. to you know, burn people alive in in these caves. So, I think just maybe shared trauma is is you know that's not something that people want to talk about. Well, let's 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 get to your grandfather's story first. So your family is from in Germany the the Alsace region talk talk a little bit about first the history of that region and give us some context to to the story we're walking into with your grandfather.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. My parents are are from just across the river from Alsace. So they're in they're from the Black Forest region, but the interesting thing is that Alsace and Black Forest they share almost the same dialect, almost the same history, almost the same culture. And so and, and the thing about Alsace is, I mean, it, it, its history goes back so deep. It, it starts with, with Emperor Charlemagne, who you know, had this, the first great empire in, in, in Europe. And he, when he dies, it gets divided up into three sections. And the western section becomes France, the eastern section becomes Germany, and the middle section, where Alsace is, that goes all the way down from Belgium down to, to Italy, um, is the richest. Uh, you know, you know, inclo- includes you know the, the, Pap- the Vatican City and all this great farmland. It gets fought over for the next few centuries, and the Germans and the French take turns claiming it. for For most of the history, it was German until Louis the Fourteenth shows up and takes it over. But he's kind of a benign ruler; he just lets the Germans be German. But it's it's technically French, but it's 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 they still speak german and then in 1871 the prussians march in and they take it over and they 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 are very stern kind of nationalistic people and they make everybody learn german and they talk about how france is an inferior culture and then um in 1918 after world war 1 the french come in and they say they do the opposite. They kick out a, thousands of Germans. They issue identity cards based on how ger- how French you are. They're very prejudiced against the German history. Um, and then finally in 40, the Nazis come in and they're the worst of all. And they come in and... Take this country and and Germanify it so quickly. I mean, all the street sides change to German names. The people's people's last names gets changed. The grave inscriptions get changed. You know, you couldn't have thermometers had had red, white, and blue colors on them because those are the French colors. I mean, just at every level, it gets Germanified, and you know. And so, what's happening is Alsace becomes kind of an, an incubator for nationalism. In Europe, it's a place where the idea of what it uh, of of countries' identities get ratcheted up generation to generation to the point where the Nazis are just insane about it. I mean, they outlawed berets; you could get put in jail for wearing a beret in Alsace, you know. And so, you know, into this comes my grandfather in 1940. He's sent there to re-educate these French kids and be part of that Germanification process. And of course, the Alsatians. Are you know they've been through a lot of the people in that village have been through three regimes already or were born born German and then became French and now they're German again, or they were born French and now they're german there's so much kind of the whole idea of national identity is so weird in that place, and it feels so kind of imposed upon them both by the French and by the Germans that you know, you kind of have these people in this. I mean, I think most of them truly are French patriots in the end. And, and they see the, the awfulness of the Nazi occupation. But at the same time, they almost all grew up speaking German. They all speak German at home. So there's a part of them that is culturally German still. So they're really divided in their in their feelings about this whole period.
1: So then your your family is not actually from Alsace. It's from next to Alsace.
2: We're from a, directly... 20 minutes by bicycle across the river. And, and, and okay. but, but again, you know, those, those distinctions we put on, I mean, the, some people think of the Rhine as a dividing line, going back to, to, to Caesar, you know, and some people think of the Vosges as a dividing line, the, the, the mountain range, which is west of the Rhine. So you can think of it as all the same area, or you can think of it as two distinct countries.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about your grandfather's World War I experience first. So your grandfather was born in 1899, I believe. So he was, well, how old was he when he, when he went into World War I? What were the circumstances? Um, What was he doing right before World War I, uh, before he joined the fighting?
2: I mean, he was, he was a farmer's son, you know, he was like working, working their little plot of land. His father had committed suicide when he was, when he was very young, had kind of gambled away the farm or so he thought and committed suicide that day. So he grew up with a stepfather um, and then, and was very religious. Um, I mean, ended up going to seminary school, religious school and studying to be a priest. And when he got called in by the German army, he was, I think, 18 or 19. I think he was 19, uh, just turned 19 suddenly he got thrown into the Western front, kind of green. He was, you know, the, the very end of the war, the, kind of the last greenest recruits thrown into, into into that area, into the Western front. And he became part of the Meuse-Algonne ca- campaign, which is the biggest campaign of the war, but people know very little about it. I think it just doesn't, it's kind of such an ugly, ugly battle. That it doesn't have, uh, you know, it's kind of been under, under, under discussed in, in war, in American wartime history. But, you know, I forget the numbers, but hundreds of thousands of people died and it was a, a huge battle and that's where he lost his eye.
1: Yeah. Well, how did, so he, he fought from right up until I think like September of 1918 where he was injured, correct? Yeah. And he just, he, he managed to make it home. How did the war change him?
2: You know, he, uh, I mean, first of all, just physically, he was kind of broken. I mean, he had uh, not just this eye that had been shot out, had to have a glass eye in it, but he had shrapnel all over his body. Um, he, it took him, you know, he, tr- he couldn't be an engineer anymore, or, or he couldn't be a priest anymore because he'd lost his faith. I mean, the war had just kind of shattered his sense of, of, of God and, and, and justice of, of of that kind. His alternative thing was to be an engineer. He'd taken some, done some engineering work before the war and he couldn't do that very well because of his, his vision was screwed up. You know, he couldn't see three dimensionally very well. And so he applied to be a, a student, I mean, a a teacher to, to get a teaching degree. And he was denied at first. I mean, I know all this because I found in the Freiburg archives, I found this amazing document, which was kind of a, workman's comp kind of application from him to the German government saying, look, I have these war injuries and they've prevented me from earning income. Uh, Can you compensate me for that? And so it's this amazing five or six page single space document where he describes exactly what he went through. So he eventually gets his German teaching certificate after a couple of years of trying and then kind of makes the rounds of little villages as an assistant teacher for years in the black forest, just kind of living hand to mouth, and eventually gets a the next stage, a secondary teaching certificate so he can be a head teacher. And then in 1930, he finally gets his job in Auffingen, this little German village of 650 people, pretty close to Lake Constance down in South Central Germany. And there, that's where he joins the Nazi party in 1933.
1: Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about some of this the research that you did and how your your grandfather you described him as being very you found he was very idealistic. Talk about the what what you found when you went to research kind of his uh not ascent, but his his coming into the Nazi Party and his beliefs
2: about national socialism. Well, it's interesting, you know, because what that was the one of the things I was Really concerned about when I started this project. I mean, I knew the beginning and e- end of this book, but I didn't know. I had a big blank spot when it came to these years because my mother and my uncles didn't remember any of it. They were they were too young at the time, and I didn't have any documents. He didn't have any diaries from those years. He didn't have any letters. Um, I had that workman's comp document, but it ended in 1928, so I didn't know any of this stuff. And then I called this village mayor's office and I asked, do you have any archives I can look up? And they said, no, there are no archives here. And I said, well, are there old people who might remember my grandfather who had him as a teacher? And they get back to me a few days later. No, there no nobody remembers him here. And so I finally ended up going to a bunch of villages. I just flew to Germany and I went to a bunch of villages around Auerfingen thinking maybe I could triangulate this history. And I end up finding one archivist who says, you know what? I think there is an archive in Alfingen, But this guy, Uwe Frölin, that you've been talking to the mayor, he, he's really the town chimney sweep. He doesn't really know anything about that history. So I, he puts me in touch with Uwe Frölin. And finally, um, I show up at that village and Uwe Frölin makes an appointment with me to look at the archive. And we go down into this kind of dungeon like space in the town hall And they're all these leather bound volumes. And I think, hallelujah, I found this archive and I look through them and they're all bills. They're like three centuries of bills. And I'm like, and so I, um, so I tell Uwe, well, look, I'm going to look through these due diligence, but could you show me where the bathroom is? And he goes, Oh, okay. So he takes me up to the next floor. And as we're passing through the vestibule to the bathroom, I see these big armoires and I look at those and he says, Oh yes, you may, you may find something of interest in there. So I, I open one of them up and it's just got like a perfectly organized archive that has not been looked at in 70 or 80 years and including, you know, and it's divided by like police matters, military matters, schooling matters, road work matters. And so in that I found this file of schooling matters. I found just dozens of letters my grandfather had written to teachers, to students, to the Nazi authorities, responses from Nazi authorities to them. I found circulars that were sent from from Berlin and from the regional headquarters in Hollisburg from the Nazi authorities about tightening the, the net on on Jewish immigrants, or, or Jews in the area. And you kind of, it was an amazing thing. It kind of gave me this granular view of how nazism kind of infected and took hold of this village and you know and it's interesting to see because you know certainly my grandfather is writing letters to the nazis and signing them heil hitler it was kind of the you know the required sign off in those years and he's leading the hitler youth and he's talking about how he's trying to instill the principles of national socialism in his young charges and there's plenty in it that shows his passion for the for for nazism and he went to to two nuremberg rallies i mean he was those were speech where 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 hitler really laid out his kind of anti-semitic agenda and and so he was aware of all that but the interesting thing is you know, I, I, like a lot of Germans, there was this idea, and I think we see that today, too, in our politics. There's this idea that, yeah, yeah, he, he's a blowhard, but really, that's not what matters. What matters is economic policies. Yeah, yeah, that stuff, that's just hot air. And, you know, it's hard to know how how seriously someone like my grandfather took that. I know that there was some traces of anti-Semitism in, in his life. My mom said occasionally he would make anti-Semitic comments. But, but she also said absolutely not if he had known. Like so many Germans say that now. If they had known what was really intended, what would really happen, they wouldn't have gone along with it. It's, it's one of those questions that's kind of unanswerable at some so Do you think
1: it was the economic conditions that drew your grandfather to, to, to Nazism?
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's 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 clear because he he didn't join for with, with the first waves that were purely political. But he did. The way he kind of entered it was he joined what's called the Winter Hillswerk, um, which was the a, a winter charity program that the Nazis were now in charge of. And he started doing charity work, giving clothing and food to the poor. And eventually that became a Nazi organization, then he joined that, and then, he, and then the Nazi teachers leagues, like 94% of elementary school teachers within a few years were all Nazi, part of the, uh, the National Socialist Teachers League. So, you know, I think he he just got pulled in little by little, and then eventually became kind of convinced by the organization of it, but at, but at an economic level, I think, more than anything else.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: what 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 were some of as the the war drew closer? What were some of the things that I'm sure going into this archive? I mean, nobody wants to uncover that their family was like involved in like Nazism type stuff. And and maybe in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, you know, give me something that could like vindicate my grandfather here or, or something like that. What were some of the things you that you uncovered that? that made you think, okay, maybe he's not like this diehard dedicated Nazi who believes that, you know, Jews are inferior in, in those types of things.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, um, certainly going into an archive like that, I, I, I mean, I kind of knew already by then that in France he had changed and that he had, had this relationship with the resistance. So I knew that later in his career from 40 to 44, he, was, he, had, he had evolved and become a different man, but I didn't know yet how complicit he was in, in the early Nazi years. So I was, you know, it was really apprehensive as I was going through this, this archive. It's interesting. I didn't find any evidence of antisemitism in anything he wrote. I didn't find any evidence of him going along with any terrible Nazi policies in any of those files. I did find some interesting counteracting behavior. I mean, for instance, not far from there, you know, at that time, the Nazis were already euthanizing mentally disabled children, mentally disabled adults. And, and my grandfather had, especially in these files, I found all his report cards and there was one kid who was clearly severely mentally disabled. And, and my grandfather's reports on him year by year by year, he kept him in his class, he kept working with him he he kept giving him better and better scores as he could just tell that this guy baldus, this kid baldus was was really trying, and he was It was clearly he had a completely different thinking about about this kid than the Nazis wanted. The other thing I found was a letter he wrote to the local Nazi authorities saying basically complaining because one of his colleagues had been kicked out of town as a teacher and reposted somewhere else because some Nazi party members in that village, the neighboring village had decided he was not, you know, a a convinced enough Nazi. He was not being enough of a, of a team player in the Nazi party. So they had him kicked out. And so my grandfather wrote a letter to the local Nazi authorities saying, This is insane. This is, you know, the local Nazi Nazi party members are liars. What they're doing here is is making me think that the party is just a refuge for scoundrels. I mean, he uses very, very strong language. The kind of language that, you know, in that era was dangerous to have, you know, that you could get you at the very least fired or potentially, potentially shot or imprisoned. So there are certainly people who got, You know, my mother knew a neighbor who got whose father got killed simply for saying in a in a pub that he thought the Germans were going to lose the war. You know, that kind of thing happened. So, yeah. So there's already kind of evidence that that he even as he was a convinced Nazi Party member, he was a free thinker and that he had a he had the courage to express those thoughts. That was already evident even in that era.
1: Well, let's let's talk about the war breaks out. Uh, What is your grandfather's role?
2: Well, he gets sent there. He's the principal of this school in France, and he's kind of coordinating local villages to kind of organize the, the new German curriculum for these French and I, villages.
1: I think he, that the reason why he's sent as a teacher, so he fought in the First World War, and he's a little bit older at this point, but he's, he's too old to go to the front lines, uh, so they, they send him to a school.
2: I mean, he's, in 1940, you know, he's 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 41 years old. So he's too old to fight. So they sent him to be this teacher. And, and he does that for a couple of years, um, is by all accounts, I mean, I interviewed a, a number of his former students who are now in their late 70s and 80s. And, and they all said he was very strict, but very, very good teacher, which wasn't always the case. A lot of the Nazi teachers were were basically just mouthpieces for propaganda, you know, and they would teach teach racist stereotypes and they would do war you know just everything was based yeah. on the war but but he was a good teacher and then in 42 he gets appointed by the local nazi authorities as as um which is nazi party chief and that's when things become quite serious because before this he can kind of ignore some of what he's told to do as a, as a school teacher and simply be you know he has them sing some songs and has them look through you know, the, the day's war reports. But after that, he's an ordinary teacher. But as a Nazi party chief, chief he's suddenly got these villagers' lives in his hands. You know, if somebody gets drunk and spouts anti-German rhetoric and gets sent to a concentration camp, there are two concentration camps not far from the village, they could very easily get killed or deported and and it's up to him to either write a letter to try and get them released or not if local young men are trying to avoid the German draft and don't want to be sent to Russia where they'll probably get killed, and his parent and their parents are hiding them in a barn. My grandfather often knew about that. we know this from letters that were later written and he and and it's his duty as a German Nazi officer to report these people and have them arrested. And he didn't. He did the opposite. He he let them, he, he, he helped hide them. So that's when suddenly, you know, it's lives are at stake and his real question becomes, are you more, is your duty really to the Nazis or is your duties to the, is your duty to the human lives of these people in this village?
1: Yeah. Well, we actually, we haven't talked too much about your mother in this story, but she plays a pretty prominent role. Talk about her, her role as kind of a researcher and somebody who's alongside you uncovering some of this history
2: yeah my mom i mean this this book wouldn't have happened without her um and from the very beginning i mean she was i would interview her almost you know every couple of days I would talk to her and ask her for more stories about all these people and because she's both a grand uh, both a daughter and a historian, she was invaluable i mean she kind of could talk about both sides of the story. She, would, she was able to, I think, really objectively tell me the historical context and what the situation was, but at the same time then talk very personally about her father and her experience during the war. You know, she, like I said, was born in 35. Her village got evacuated three times and she would go up to the Black Forest Village where my grandfather was, was born, Erzug- Erzug- Erzug Weile, and and live with her uncles and aunts and uh, in these little farmsteads and eventually when she was in 1944 45 she you know the the french attacked and 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 the village had to evacuate into the forest and and there was a, a night when they were all laying on the ground and bombs between the french and the germans were arcing overhead and and they could have easily all been been killed in that night so so she had I think a very traumatic wartime experience, but, but always on, you know, it's the woman, women's experience. We don't often hear, you know, like what happens when, when these armies are fighting, well it means that all these villages all over Germany and all these cities are emptied of men, right? So you have a farming village like Haltzog I mean, it's crushing work even when the men are there. Now suddenly all these women and children and, and, and old timers have to do all that farm work to keep these places alive all the mothers have to kind of flee you know advancing armies or find refuge for their families when when the the enemy is attacking you know that was her experience was the the other side of the war that we so, so often don't hear about
1: yeah well i'm curious how both you and your your mother felt one when you would when you uncovered something that was maybe more shameful in your grandfather's past that you hadn't known previously, but also how the both of you felt when you uncovered some of the, the resistance type activities that he was performing.
2: You know, the shameful stuff it's, it's you know, like, it, like the question of anti semitism was a really interesting one because again, I hadn't found any evidence of that in the archives. I found one reference to a speech he gave in France while he was there, where he kind of blamed, what happened in World War I on, on the German on the Jewish uh, kind of plutocracy or something? That was the, the only evidence I found in the archives. But when I asked my mother about it, again, she tried to be objective and, and it was hard for her to say, but she did say, you know, and sometimes he would say anti-Semitic things at home, and that was so common in Germany and in France, all over Europe, you know, this kind of just endemic anti-Semitism. it was part of his life, just like it was the part of so many peoples. But that was hard for her to admit. And she did. Um, And and also, I think not so much shameful, but yeah, I mean, I guess shameful. This idea that my grandfather was just an ideologue that he was so blinkered about what was going on in World War with the Nazis and his his own wife. Hated the fact that he joined the Nazis and could see the war coming and he couldn't and the fact that he could go to the nuremberg rallies and not not really hear what hitler was saying i mean i think my mom never really forgave him that she thought like he thought he thought he knew so well and yet he was blind to so many important things in terms of finding things on the other side of the ledger you know there was this amazing moment about 20 years after that encounter in the village where she heard that he had worked as a resistance, my aunt sent my mom a package. And I was, we were, she was in living in Wisconsin by then. And I was there that summer and she gets this package and she opens it up. And my aunt had found all these letters in my grandfather's desk after he died and had, and then thought my mother being a historian might be interested in them. So she had sent my mom this package and we looked at these letters and they were, seventeen testimonials from the villagers written in nineteen forty six and forty-seven. And the amazing thing about it, I mean, they're all kind of on little scraps of paper. They're you know, farmers have written these. They're not eloquent. They're they're kind of very simple, but they're saying, you know, look, I'm a I'm a patriotic Frenchman. I hated the Nazis, but this Nazi please save his life. And what turns out was happening was my grandfather was imprisoned at that point in in the citadel in Strasbourg and being tried for potential war crimes and these villagers had all written these letters to the french military government saying no no this guy was not that he was actually helping us he was protecting us and what's really moving about those letters what was moving for us at the time was 1946 france was in the middle of this period called the savage purification where All of the French were turning in on each other and accusing one another of collaborating and being the cause for them, you know, you know, losing to the Germans and participating with the Germans. And there were three hundred thousand trials of collaborators, with nine thousand summary executions. It was just horrifically dangerous time, you know, and and nobody wanted to be suspected of being Nazi sympathizers. And in that moment, for these 17 villages to write letters to the French military government saying, by the way, this Nazi was actually a good man. You should save his life. That took huge courage. And more than anything else I learned, anything else I heard from witnesses or, or saw in the archives or my mother told me, that was convincing to me. Because they really yeah. put their lives on the line to kind of um, to vouch for my grandfather
1: yeah and and i guess to um fill in the, the, the hole in our story here because we've jumped ahead to after the war so the war ends and your your grandfather remains in uh in this town correct and and then he's picked up what what's the story of him his imprisonment
2: yeah the reason he was in prison so the truth is he knew the French were coming to liberate the town. He could have not gone over. he could have stayed home. but he he felt like he said at the time he he wanted to he didn't want to leave the villagers hanging. i think he he might have worried that there might be you know that the, that the that the that the French might indiscriminately kill people they suspected of being collaborators, or he had some kind of idea that he needed to be there, so he crosses over, he gets arrested. He almost gets executed and then george chill the head of the resistance says no don't arrest him you should you know this guy helped me out and so then they they just send my grandfather grandfather to a prison camp along with you know hundreds of thousands of other germans and he spends a year at the prison camp finally gets released comes back to germany and then in the meantime a man in the village Louis obrecht had accused him of giving an order that had led to the killing of a, of a French villager in that village. So he gets rearrested in 1946 and brought to Strasbourg and put in prison. And that's when they start investigating this claim. Was he really responsible for this guy's death? Was he really, as Obrecht said, kind of did he rule this village with an iron fist? And in that, that was in the phase where a lot of villagers said, look, Obrecht is, He's just trying to make his name as an anti Nazi. This is not true. This guy's a an Arevist. He's trying to get power in the village. And, and and that's when those letters were written to the military government that eventually got my grandfather released.
1: And I guess we didn't we didn't state what what specifically were the resistance activities that he was doing?
2: Well, the resistance activities were were like, you know, I mean, it was in some ways passive, some ways active. The active stuff was simply constantly getting people released from the camps or, or having, or or preventing deportations. I mean, it was all subtle stuff. I mean, I, you know, I looked at accounts from villages all around um, Bautenheim because there were post post post-war reports where they, where they sent questionnaires to all these villagers and you know, in almost every village that I saw, there were families deported. There were people sent to the camps. There some, it was a death camp not that far from Bautenheim. You know, thousands of people were killed there. But in Bautenheim itself, nobody died. So really what he did mostly was simply, you know, get people out of camps, get people in, not report people for crimes they were doing, you know, helping passively to hide these uh, these these soldiers that were hiding from the draft. I mean, some of these things were capital offenses. If, if the Nazi authorities had found out that he knew that there were soldiers, young soldiers hiding from the draft and he was deliberately helping them stay hidden, he would have been executed. But, but that was, so that was what was going on. It was a lot of it was kind of small bore stuff, but ended up saving lives.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, after you um, completed this book, I'm I'm curious how you changed personally now having gleaned this more complicated picture of your
2: grandfather. You know, I think I've always felt this way to some degree. I mean, I've never felt I've never really believed in original sin. I've never really believed in this idea that national character is a thing that makes people good or bad. You know, I, I've always felt like there is that capacity in everybody. But I think doing this research really made that so much more clear to me. Like I, I kept thinking when I was doing it, like what would I have done in my grandfather's shoes? And, and it made me realize my own strengths and my weaknesses. My strengths are I'm not a joiner. I'm not, I, I'm a, I, I think I'm a, a balanced thinker. I'm not an ideologue like my grandfather. I'm, I'm almost positive I wouldn't have joined the Nazi party. Just not, I don't do that kind of thing. On the other hand, I can also argue things from both sides. You know, if I had actually been posted in France and been in charge of people's lives, would I have had the courage to kind of, to put my life on the line over and over again to save people's lives? I don't know. I hope I would have been, but, but that's where I think his strength of character, his conviction, his, you know, his intent, his blinkeredness that got him into the party also made him willing to take these risks um, to save people's lives. I think, the more you look in detail at, at these stories, you start to see how humans are complicated creatures and they're thrown into these deadly situations and they react differently. And it, and, and to have some final judgment that says, this man's a good man, this man's a bad man. In most cases, I mean, absolutely. There are Nazi war criminals that should be condemned. There're Millions of them, you know, but, 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 but for the the great majority of people they're not in that category. You can't judge them so simply. It's just too complicated.
1: Yeah. Well, you know,
2: I wonder if do you feel like
1: a more do you feel like generationally people are and I'm thinking specifically of in Germany how people are talking about the war, but do you think people are are becoming more open to reckoning with um with this very complicated you know, two sides to many of their family members. Oh, how cool. is how is how is the modern generation kind of dealing with this same question?
2: Oh no, yeah, absolutely. It's it's. I mean, one thing that struck me when I went to Germany, I took a when I got the book contract in 2014, my wife and I and my youngest daughter, we all went to Germany and went to Berlin for a year, and I spent a lot of time just in archives. And wherever I went, you know, there were Germans my age doing the same kind of work. And and it's and it's kind of a at this point a well recognized movement called the Kriegskinder movement the the war children movement and and it started about fifteen years ago when um, this woman Sabine Boide started to do oral histories with Germans about their wartime experience and suddenly people my age suddenly realized that there was this big blank spot in their family history right that all those stories their grandparents didn't tell um, and then their parents. Didn't know those stories, and and didn't pass them on, and so you have this. But also repressed, were also felt shameful about their, ashamed of their own family history. So there was this big blank spot in German history, and I think a whole generation of around my age and their middle age have started to go back and dig these things up. The hard part is, as you can tell from my work, it's not easy. You know, the Germans have incredible archives, but. But there are all these blank spots and if and if your if your parents were weren't famous or or weren't in some prominent role it's hard to get the details um so it's it it's it's an interesting uh, uncovering but it but it mm-hmm. can be done
1: well Burkhard, this has been a a wonderful interview uh, my last question here uh, is what 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 lessons do you think we can draw from your grandfather's story that, that apply to our modern times?
2: I mean, I think the danger of demagoguery, the de- danger of, of, of not taking people at face value, not believing what they say. You know, I think we have politicians today who, are, who make outrageous statements, and we often give them a pass and think, oh, they don't really mean it. But they do mean it. Often they do mean it. And and we and we had better take them, take them seriously. This notion, this idea that. You know, part of what happened in Nazi Germany was you were just getting propaganda accounts, you know, you're just getting. And anything you heard that might make you believe that the Nazis were doing terrible things, that there was starting to be final solution type activity, you, you, you would dismiss that as propaganda. Oh, that can't be true. My my side wouldn't do that. But it was true. And I think nowadays it's not outright propaganda, but our news sources are so are so one-sided, and we're so willing to just dismiss anything we hear that doesn't conform to our point of view. I think that is something we should really be on the lookout for. I mean, this this willingness to kind of say, wait a second, I want to be skeptical about my news sources. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna look behind the kind of accepted. Accepted views of my little political r- group. That's, I think, hugely important, and that's what I think too many Germans didn't do in the 30s and 40s. Yeah.
1: Well, Burkhardt, if people want to stay in touch with your work, if they want to figure out what you're you're writing about, how can people stay in touch with what you're doing?
2: I mean, you know, Google search will obviously it will quickly. Pull me up. Then I'm I'm still writing for pieces for the New Yorker. Um, I'm doing a piece on the Stasi right now the the East German secret service. It's kind of a follow up to the book and and so that's easiest is just to follow my work in the New Yorker. But I think you know I'm I'm a person at this point that's that's pretty well documented online. So you you put my name social media and- or anything. Yeah, I'm on Facebook and on Instagram and I don't I'm not a huge poster. I don't I don't tweet or. And I, uh, but I, I, I put the most important milestones in there. So anyway, that's uh, that's you can well, definitely follow me. Well, I'm curious about your
1: your book on the Stasi. Now, um, I just had um, Katja Hoyer uh, on the show not too long ago, who recently wrote a book about East Germany and the Stasi. Yeah. So um, she wrote a review go- of my
2: book for the the Times, the uh, the London Times, actually. Oh, excellent.
1: Wow. Look at all these connections that we're making with other former war books uh, guests today. Um, Well, Burkhardt Bilger, Fatherland, A Memoir of War, Conscious, and Family Secrets. Go buy a copy. Go check it out from your library. Um, What a really fascinating story you write here, Burkhardt. And uh, again, thanks so much for your time today.
2: I had a good time. Thank you so much.